Okay, welcome everybody to this Sonic Talk number 45. I'm going to be live on the 10th of May, that's Thursday. Um, we've got another full house here. Um, sadly, uh, Hans or non-Eric couldn't be here. You need hands to hold. <laughs> um, but um, that fantastic piece of live radio there was um, was courtesy of Mark Tinley, who is with us this week. And uh, how are you, Mark? I'm very well. I've also got another guest for you uh, with me here. Have you? Who? Is that, a, is that a circuit bent speaking spell by any chance? Uh, it's a circuit bent Furby. Furby, oh, yes! Oh, the circuit bent Furby. Oh, we're very glad to, to hear from him. And who else have we got? We've got, uh, once again, John Musgrave. Can't keep away. Are you addicted to our company or is it just an excuse to not work? Both. I like that. That's a good, yeah, honest answer. Diplomatic. So how are you, John? You well? I'm very well, thank you. Glad to hear it. And PJ Tracy from Minneapolis, how are you doing? Good morning. Doing fantastic. This fine morning, you're feeling uh, feeling fine, and uh, you were on a kind of strange diet. I was on a diet called the Master Cleanse. My um, my girlfriend, who is a, a dietitian and a massage uh, therapist, suggested that we attempt this diet uh, last week, and it's meant to clean the body of all toxins and uh, you spend uh, five days eating nothing and drinking only lemonade made from grade b maple syrup uh, clarified water and uh, organic lemons and i can tell you that it definitely clues you into your relationship towards food um, <laughs> wow. and how hungry one can actually be <laughs> wow. and, and do you feel better uh, are, are you feeling cleansed and, and kind of good and you know back back with the force actually yeah I feel fantastic, and I think I'll—I uh, think I'll incorporate this as a regular part of my diet. You know, every few months. I admire actually. your um, your tenacity. I don't think I could put—I could do it. I think I'd probably lose it after a day or so. Dave, Dave Spears from G4 Software, how are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. Back from—you you weren't with us last week, but uh, presumably is your kitchen all uh, all done now? We're not going to get too many power tool interruptions unless Mark's got some fantastic sound effects for us. Uh, no, it's good. Got rid of them. They're gone. They're gone, and we've eaten. Excellent. <laughs> So does the cook, the new cooker, cook yep, to your uber expectation? Fantastic. Yep, that's all brilliant. A class appliances. I tell you what happened to us is, um, is when we got our kitchen done, we got a new, a new cooker, a new oven. I suppose it would be, and uh, we burnt everything because because uh, it was so much more efficient than the last one. Everything that we cooked just got completely in the oven, just burnt because we we kind of you know, we're still on the old old oven kind of style. Richard Hilton. Good morning. Good morning. From we have Sony. a blazing open pit in our living room with a huge cauldron in the center of it. Excellent. In which we do the cooking. Are you a man of the forest in Connecticut then? <laughs> oh, yeah. I've got my, uh, yeah. No, I'm uh, far from it, actually. It is lovely here today, though. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Warm and sunny and beautiful and trees are bursting with life and I'm almost bursting with life and it's all good. <laughs> Just one more cup of coffee. Yeah, maybe a few more blues licks on the guitar. Uh, yeah, I thought I heard some twanging there in the background. Are you kind of um, fondling your um, your axe? Yeah, well, yeah. Right, well, thank you very much for joining us, everybody. And uh, should we jump straight in and um, and have a look at, um, well, first of all, the inventive MIDI control. that Rich, you sent this, and it looked uh, kind of interesting. It, it was what it, what it essentially was, from what I can gather, it's a video on YouTube, and it's a chap who's um, essentially just... Um, Sort of hotwired his credit card and put a strip on it and turned it into it's kind of almost like a um, a ribbon controller. Would that be a fair a fair way of describing it? 
That's how I saw it. Yep. I don't know quite what sort of electronic he had uh, hooked up to it, but uh, I, I had, a, had a feeling that perhaps he was perhaps too familiar with uh, hot wiring credit cards there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that never occurred to me, but you're right. <laughs> what gave him this idea? Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. Well, it's just when I saw this, it occurred to me that it, I, for me it was very entertaining and that there is an extremely select number of people in this world who might be entertained by such a thing and... Some of them, presumably, are listening to this podcast. Well, some of them are certainly participating in it. I can speak for myself. <laughs> I don't know whether anyone's listening or not, but uh, I do hope so. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest, I couldn't get, the, couldn't get it to play all the way through, so I was left in suspense as to what exactly he was going to do with it. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, but I did find a couple of other videos on his site. He had, he had something called a piece of MIDI paper where he'd photocopied a MIDI keyboard onto a piece of paper and was using that to play from. Oh, He'd made himself a drum controller out of pennies as well, which is quite strange. That sounds interesting. I didn't get what this thing was really... I mean, I couldn't see how I would use it, so I, I couldn't... Well, from I what I remember, he was just using sense. it to control the filter uh, cut-off on uh, uh, a break going through Ableton Live. Great. What's wrong with a knob? Uh, well, one might <laughs> ask him that question, but as he's not here, we'll just have to speculate. <laughs> Let's agree that it's purely a novelty item. Yeah, shall we? Not a practical <laughs> Yeah, solution. he's just having fun. G- given that I didn't manage to see the whole thing, did, was he basically running his finger along the strip? Yeah, yeah he's he like a ribbon controller. Yes. Got it. And you could have a whole cool. wallet a whole wallet full of these things. Yeah, I wonder if like Amex has a slightly different uh, slightly different <laughs> sort of key and perhaps uh, you know, Visa gives you something else and uh, you know, they could be Well, I have to say I drifted off onto cuz you go on YouTube and you see like there's loads of other kind of things that people have made to control and I drifted off onto all the all the pictures of people using Wii's to control their to control yeah control we've covered a few of those that, that, that which you've covered before but I've never seen quite so many there's quite no, a few they're, on there they're, they're, they're sort of uh, multiplying rep- replicating like rabbits yeah. um, but I suppose while we're on the sort of circuit bent I mean there seems to be kind of a lot of stuff going on in the circuit bending world it sort of seems to be become, becoming more mainstream I know we've been talking about it for a while and sort of spotting the the odd kind of freakish use of it. But um, in, th- th- in this program, we've got a couple of things. But the the, uh, the next one was this uh, the circuit bent plugin, which uh, looks kind of interesting. It's called Bertrill or Bertil. Did you see that one? Yes. Yes, I did. I didn't understand the circuit bent aspect of that either, because it seemed to be that he'd modelled that pile of toys in a VST plugin, and it didn't look to me. I don't. I didn't looked to me like you could really do that it looked more like a publicity uh, sort of exercise more than anything else i mean i want to know how he modeled it isn't modeling one of those terms that's bandied around these days that's sometimes more akin to the way people would say that back in 1984 on a dx7 you have a, a trumpet patch and it's supposed to model the sound of a trumpet because I, I think a lot of times these days people are just programming, uh, you know, freeware plugins and synth edit or maybe coding their own and not to, not to um, disparage the, the ability of these folks because they, they churn out some really good software. But actually modeling uh, the toys, I wonder if that, if that happened in the, cl- in, the, in the purest sense of the word model or if, if it's just somebody programming something that sounds close to the sound. Right. It's probably, oh, yeah, well, that's yeah, the thing. Yeah. Is it component modelled? I mean, I don't believe it could possibly be component modelled because you'd have to take the toy apart. Most of these toys have like a single kind of 
chip in them that looks like a little semicircular kind of button thing in the middle of them that does everything and there's no way you could model that because you wouldn't yeah. be able to pull the thing apart to find out what was inside it dave you you've got guys modeling things do you think it's possible to model one of those little tiny chips uh yeah every, anything's possible the thing that strikes me about a lot of this a lot of the sort of circuit bending stuff is that the actual doing it in the physical world is far more interesting than the concept of it ending up in software, as far as I can see. Like the actual the sort of the process is part of what it's about. And once it ends up in a sort of software world, you know, you've kind of taken away all the fun and it just becomes kind of, like you say, sort of painstaking component modelling process. Yeah, I guess. Unless you can open yeah. it up so that you can effectively kind of mess about with the innards. I mean, we've talked about this in the past, about having the ability to kind of take something that's yeah. been properly modelled and then make it wrong and see what happens. Um, but as Dave uh, Spears has said in the past, you know the, the the processor overhead and kind of the optimization aspect of it is going to be the thing that makes it work on most systems. Whereas you know you're going to need some serious amount of CPU power to kind of be able to pick it apart and reconfigure it in any way you want to. But maybe someone will work on that. I think it's all down to like when you short things out and how you short things out. The whole circuit bending thing, and it's like um, my Furby's got one button on her him or her it and when you press the button it shorts something out on the circuit board and basically locks the whole thing up and makes it do weird things and i don't know how you could model that because is it unpredictable yeah very unpredictable so that's what i mean that's what's interesting about it is the fact it's unpredictable you can't model things which are that unpredictable surely well not without a hell of a lot of research that's the same thing let me try Let's hear the Furby. That's pretty unpredictable, isn't it? Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> and, it's made, and it sings. It, when it lo- if you can lock it into um, a cycle of sound, it will play different notes as well. Why shouldn't it be possible in software to component model a device like that and then put up a graphic on screen that would allow you to point-to-point connect pretty much any combination of things and insert switches and potentiometers in them? And I don't see why that is far-fetched at all. Well, I envision this sort of reason-like interface where you've got a circuit board looking at you that you can flip upside down and just start connecting stuff, (laughs) where you've modeled the components and the paths on the board. Yeah, well, that would be really, really cool, and I want to beta test it. When somebody makes that, I'll beta test it. Dave, you're very quiet. Are you just thinking, you're all mad? You don't know how much it costs. Yeah, something along those lines. Reactor is kind of essentially, the Native Instruments uh, synth is, you can, you can, how far under the hood can you go with that? I mean, presumably you can make it sound terrible if you really want to. I mean, with great ease, I should imagine, if you're building something from the component up. Is that is that a case? Does anybody know Reactor enough? Uh, I haven't spent that much time with it, to be honest. Not since it first came out. Right. And it wasn't very reliable, so I just kind of... It's been filtered out of my brain since then. I just remember when I first looked at the kind of... The very dense kind of uh, manual that came with it. You know, once you get underneath the skins and the modules that you can load in that are pre-built ensembles and the various bits, you know, it describes in sort of minute detail each electronic component aspect of it. And I was kind of thinking, wow, that now maybe, you know, you could do stuff with that, but I don't know. The problem with that, though, is that you need to know what you're doing, and the whole point of circuit bending is that people who circuit bend stuff don't really know what they're doing, and it's all experimental and random. So if somebody tells me this resistor's got a 2K ohm value or whatever, it's not going to mean anything to me. If somebody tells me if you connect that bit to that bit, 
well, you know, here is the end of that resistor and you can connect that from there to there, and th then that would make sort of uh, something circuit bendable, wouldn't it? But, you know, all the, all the values are irrelevant unless unless you're an electronics whiz, and if you're an electronics whiz, you'll never short the things out in the same way as somebody would if they were doing it random. Because you'll be doing it properly, I suppose. Of course. Yeah. You're thinking well, about it too much. Unless, of course, you're yeah. a worm. <laughs> Nicely. Do you, what do you think? That's a good one. While we're on the subject of circuit bending, this uh, weird worms um, topic that we found, um, this guy called Ashford Daisiak, or at least that's his YouTube handle, um, uh, I'll just read what he did. He said, following a grueling audition process, one solo worm was hand-selected to perform its own music without proviso on a specially adapted and destabilized FM synthesis circuit disemboweled from a PSS, Yamaha PSS 470. For one day, this worm was treated like royalty, whisked around London's swankiest mud spas and uh, hermaphrodite clubs before spending an evening on the very best hotel, whatever it's called. What a star. Well, he, 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 as he keeps on stating, because people are very upset that this worm might have been in pain, He's got this big open circuit board with a very low voltage and he's sort of tossed a worm onto it and the worm has shorted out randomly various kind of bits and as a result makes some kind of sound art, I would say. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> I liked it too. The, the only thing was I felt a little bit uncomfortable about the worm because it was there sort of spasming and jerking around. I mean, I don't know. I've, I've used to go fishing and worms generally do that anyway. So it's not kind of... It just seems like it's being tortured, and the guy goes to great lengths to say, "No, honestly, honestly, I, it was really like this is what worms do." But he's had lots and lots of complaints. And um, well, I'm not surprised because the, I mean, the main thing that he's done with that worm is he, he may have whisked it around London and taken it to the worm Aphrodite clubs and all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> the one thing that he hasn't done is he hasn't given the worm its royalties because when YouTube start paying out, if this video gets lots of hits. <laughs> He'll get the money, and I bet you anything he doesn't give it to the worm. <laughs> no, you're right. But uh, aren't there things called worm banks in gardens? Maybe he can leave a deposit Go there. And put some in there. <laughs> <laughs> we got a comment on the new news item. I put it up. Uh, it was put up last week, and there was one guy who said, uh, even though he was a, a, an ardent um, field sports exponent and used to actually kill vermin for a living, he still, some, for some reason, felt uncomfortable about this worm being exploited. <laughs> and he couldn't quite figure out why, because it's only a worm, obviously. But um, also, there was a kind of like a gaggle of worms dropped onto a, a, another kind of circuit bo uh, board, which was also another load of interesting noise. But May I, may I mention, um, just for those who are interested, that, and anybody that has access to a, to a PC for music making, there's a fella who is or was active on the KVR um, developer's site named Jack Dark who runs a website called Darkware and he has a bunch of freeware circuit bent plugins. They're, they're actually not circuit bent plugins. They're, they're little synthesizers that randomly control sound but uh, what's interesting about them is whenever you strap them across any track in your DAW you do get a lot of very glitchy unpredictable random sounds that are useless unless you sample them and put them into context they sound really good these are the ones that have these really good graphics aren't they is that right yeah they, they look like um, Japanese anime yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Look, they look yeah, really I mean, cool they, they might be slightly offensive yeah they might be slightly offensive to some folks because it's a lot of you know half half-naked women, and that type of thing. But So, I mean, has anyone ever come across, because there's quite often you come across things like, you know, say, old valve amps and things. I remember um, there's a bass player uh, that's from around here that you, has got an Ampeg uh, flip top, and it's it's kind of broken, but it has the most amazing sound. It just kind of, it's incredibly distorted, but it sounds brilliant. 
I mean, do you ever come? Uh, are there any pieces of equipment that any of you lot have got that I can't talk about that piece of equipment? Sorry. Oh, okay. Anybody else? <laughs> I have a little uh, a little practice amp from Sears. This old little Sidekick <clears throat> practice amp, and anything I run through it when I turn the drive knob all the way up, it's uh, it, it, and it's total of fifteen watt glory. Sounds fantastic when I stick a, a fifty seven in front of it, so right. I can I can record. Uh, keyboards or guitars or vocals and uh, you can get all manner of wacky distortion coming from that amplifier and i love it it's so fantastic. it's kind of but it's sort of built-in abuse how about you rich have you got anything that you kind of abuse in a particular way that perhaps shouldn't do what it does not specifically but i have used devices in unusual ways for example i once used a vocoder uh to process an accordion sound i was doing and as the control uh, audio, I used uh, breathing in and out that I recorded, for example. So that's not specifically bending a circuit or using any. It's just using something in a sort of unexpected way, but not actually using it in a way that's beyond its intended use. Yeah, well, that's one thing. The cool thing about vocoders is because you could, depending on what your carry, what the carrier is and what the modulator is, you can kind of come up with all sorts of weird stuff. I remember there was a kind of real phase of. Um, Using drums as the uh, the modulator, and you know, putting pads in and getting these kind of weird sort of spiky sort of wave sequence. Yeah, type things, of, I, yeah. I, know, I remember. I think um, uh, a seal. It was at the beginning of. Uh, I think it might have been crazy or one of one of the album tracks that he did that had an, a, at the right at the very beginning. There's this kind of vocoded pad that works really well. Yeah, I better not mention anything about that because if I mentioned my brother, I'd be name dropping, wouldn't I? Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Here we go. Here we go. Oh yes, um, the, the last I, last week's thread. Um, we have a a, a a rather cantankerous poster who posted something on one of the uh, on the comments that you could leave at the bottom of any of our news items or articles. Who was uh, moaning about Mark name dropping, which I think you know, and we all came to his defence. Well, I didn't because I was away, but everybody else came to his defence. And uh, I think, to be honest, the chat was just uh, looking for a rise. So Mark isn't allowed to mention anybody he's worked with. Directly. I, on the other hand. <laughs> I, on the other hand, would be happy to mention a story related to what we were just talking about, uh, which had been told to me by Nile Rogers, who I work with. And uh, it relates to the uh, using of his guitar as a keypex trigger very early on. I mean, uh, Let's Dance, the album Let's Dance from 1981 is full of it, uh, where he's triggering the horns open in the keypex from the guitar. Ah, I wrote to, to get the, to get his feel or to make it t- as tight as he wanted or how what was the exactly purpose of? all of that all of that and maybe because it sounded cool I wasn't there for that but uh, apparently between he and Bob Thurman oh. at the time they came up with that and he has used guitar playing to trigger open all kinds of keyboard pads and things and like that and this goes back as I say now twenty five years. Oh, I would also like to name drop at this point, if you don't mind, just because I think it's it's <laughs> fun to do. I was on a I was on a corporate gig with uh, Prince's drummer Michael Bland once, and I had forgotten my sustain pedal of all things. I was playing keyboards, and uh, he rigged up just a regular instrument patch cable for me um, as a sustain pedal. By um, uh, he did some some kind of crazy cut in the cord, and and I was able to stick my foot onto the end of the contact and use it as a as a uh, sustain pedal one one thing i quite like the sound of is um when you use like someone already mentioned like mini amps you know those very small little plastic mini amps you can get like remakes of yeah. ac30 or marshall's whatever 
if you when the batteries start to run down, those start to sound great. And if you're sticking things like drum loops through them, they can sound amazing when the batteries start to suck when the power's down. Can you can you do that by maybe can, by varying the power to them? So you could actually have by a running a power supply. Yeah, I've never tried a bit low. So you could, I've tried varying um, power to. <clears throat> FX pedals like um, I've got a Boss flanger that makes a really good noise when the battery is completely flat um, because the the, uh, the analog clock in it slows right down. So the instead of it being a flanger, it turns into a really really distorted sounding, strange sounding delay. I suppose you could wire a battery up with a, a pot across the top of the battery, which would dump a whole load of it to earth. So the volt, you know, you could have a, a clean current, but you could. Um, you know, lose some of the Jeez, current it. to yeah. ground or whatever, yeah. The new MN6 music production synthesizer. From Codename Mimo. The 61 note portable synthesizer with incredible sonic power based on motive tone generation, real time audio control, USB connectivity, and computer integration. Bundled with Cubase LE audio and MIDI sequencing software. Create, produce, perform with the affordable and versatile MN6 music production synthesizer from www.mm6music.co.uk that was an ad there from Yamaha. They very kindly sponsored the show, and they'd like to bring to your attention the new Yamaha MM6, which is uh, a fabulous synthesizer, uh, a very budget price, with a great sound engine based on the Motif series. So if you want to help us look good, just go and click on the URL, mm6music.co.uk. IK, the IK Multimedia Hendrix Collection, which is, a, as far as I can tell, is a kind of plug-in suite that is designed to emulate various aspects of the kind of Hendrix um, guitar setup. Um, but it sort of got me thinking about about this whole kind of genre of uh, plugins and hardware that are designed to emulate, um, you know, the electronic guitar and stomp boxes and what have you, and, and whether anybody had had a particular favourite from, from all of those that kind of works. Rich, you must um, come across that occasionally, although I imagine, you know, you've got access to the real thing more often than not. Rarely do I have a microphone in front of a guitar amp these days. Uh, it, very rarely. Uh, my latest favorite software guitar thingy is uh, Guitar Rig 2. Okay, the native, find, native instruments. Yeah, I find it to sound a little, I don't know, more lively, more three-dimensional than the amplitude I've heard and the amp farm that I used to use all the time. I like Chrome Tone also by uh, McDSP, and I use Chrome Tone not only on guitars, but as a signal processor. I really think it's very versatile, and I use it a lot. McDSP do some great stuff, actually. You, you look at my sessions, and it's, there's green plugins all over the place. Mark, how about you? Um, I, I'm actually an IK multimedia endorsee. Oh, okay. So I've got Amplitude plugin. I like that plugin, and I've been using it for a while. But um, because the... Line 6 UX2 does it all with its own DSP in a separate box. I'm kind of favouring that now because it's um, it's just easier. Especially, I mean, if you're trying to play something, even with the slightest kind of lag from the computer, it's weird to play, so... Well, we just, yeah, because we just did a review of the uh, Plugins Gold, the Tonepool um, Plugins Gold bundle, and um, we kind of gave it to a guy who's not really into, um, you know, emulations, and he, he kind of came away kind of really pleasantly surprised and was kind of just a gog at the sort of huge palette of sounds that he had available to him and then presumably all of the you know a lot of these packages do have that but i mean 
it was his first experience, so it got a real thumbs up from him. I mean, Dave Spears, do you um, do you ever kind of go for amp sims or anything? I guess if you're working, because you're more of a keyboard kind of drums guy, but you must process things with a variety of whatever plugins are available. I use the guitar thing in Logic sometimes just to dirty some stuff up, but um, no, I've really got no experience of any of, of any of it. <clears throat> I like the Line Six stuff. I don't think you can take anything away from those guys, um, but I think. A friend of mine was using that. Remember the old Roland VG8? Yeah, we had one of those. Which I mm, like. Don't like that. I don't like that. No, I quite like that. At the time, I think but. it's a brilliant device. It may not be your favorite distortion box, but it's a brilliant device. And for it's, people who like to play various tunings on stage, was it was a godsend because you can have different tunings on different presets and be able to switch freely between them without having to retune your guitar. Yeah, well, Line 6 can do that, too. I can do, yeah, I've got that Line 6 guitar. That's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, um, that's great. But again, having said that, I'm not sure that I'd want to play it on stage because there is a slight lag with it, and I'd wanna, I can't quite get used to that. Well, you know yeah. what's interesting is one time when I was recording a certain band that will remain nameless in London, I was recording a direct <laughs> feed off of a Line 6 device at the same time I had uh, a direct feed from the guitar, I think, and a couple of microphones in front of the amp. What I recall noticing, which kind of surprised me, but once I thought about it made sense, was that uh, you had you could see the processor delay in the Line 6 signal when you compared it to the mic signal. Like typically when you take a mic and a direct guitar, you look at if you look at them up close, they're you know they're just about spot on. I mean they're really 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 close in time. But when you run anything through one of these Line Six devices and you take a good look, you find that you've got uh, a discrepancy in timing. Uh, there's also the waves the the waves GTR. Anyone seen? Because we we filmed some demos of that, the, and there's some you know some impressive endorsements and you know people saying that that's what they like to use. I mean, anyone come across the Waves GTR? Because that's supposed to be pretty damn good, too. I haven't tried it. I've actually got it on my computer at the moment, and it's about to run out, so I might as well try it for next Fire week. It up. But that's the, um, that's the, is that the Paul Reed Smith yeah. endorsed one? Yeah, he's the, they, they've kind of taken the same approach to Line 6, where you get a kind of DI box that, that kind of is built to deal with a, a guitar signal, so you kind of get the, the best quality in before it gets processed. Okay, I've not got the, the, the DI box, but I've got part of the software that goes with it, so... I think they do a software only in plugin as well, don't they? Based right. on the same technology. But in my experience, the the Amplitube. I don't know about the latest Amplitube stuff, Amplitube Two or this Hendrix one. But in my experience, I've got the LE version, and it's really good for doing kind of Les Paul sound rock guitar sounds. You know, really sort of thick kind of West Coast rock sound. Beyond that, I'm not sure. You know, I'm, I'm quite fond of the Line Six sound, really, for more kind of twangy stuff. So I think they're all pretty good at one thing. You know, it's just there are a lot of um, models in the new Amplitube as well, so lots to get through. Yeah. I just tried out the Jimi Hendrix one. I downloaded it because I was curious because I'm 44. So when I first started learning the guitar, I was about 14, and punk hadn't really quite broken, I don't think. Um, not in, I mean, not where I lived, anyway. So I started learning by playing lots of Jimi Hendrix riffs, and one of the first things I learned to play was Purple Haze. So I wanted to see if it had the vibe. So can I play my version of Purple Haze? Go for it. (laughs) 
Was that their, <laughs> was that their actual preset for the purple haze thing? Because it sounded a little less driven than uh, than my memory of the record. This is it. Now let's listen to the record. Can I play the record? Are you allowed to play? Well, we'll probably get nailed for it. But what the hell? Let's go down in flames. <laughs> So I'm using a Strat, right? A real one. Yeah. Not my Line 6. And I've got it plugged into my M-Box, and I was using the Artas version of Amplitude. That doesn't sound the same to me, sorry. No, but it could have been the fact that you were plugging a a guitar into the M-Box, and maybe, you know, the line driving of that was... And it's got the M box has got an instrument input on it, and it was and I set it up so it was just hitting the peak. So I would have, I mean, it, to me, the whole the whole thing about Jimi Hendrix is that he used to set fire to guitars, not just like literally pouring, you know, lighter fluid on it and setting fire to it, but his whole sound was about the whole machinery was being driven to its absolute maximum, and everything was kind of you know alive and alight and everything, right? And this plug-in, to me, although the sounds sound similar, has no uh, none of the kind of life or anything of Jimi Hendrix at all. And I'm, I'm, you know, maybe my guitar playing is a little bit short because, and I'm probably playing you know, it wrong. There's a lot more ambience on the record than on what you played, and that might be part of the difference. Yeah. Well, and also the ambience that- was the ambience was like really kind of getting to me though i didn't actually like the ambience in the plug-in because it said spring reverb and it was set on one or two and i was being swamped with this kind of weird kind of room sound and i actually found myself turning the ambience off on lots of things but even then it didn't sound like you know when a fuzz box really gets starts to get overloaded or it gets really crackly around the edges and things you know the guitar sustains and comes to life and my guitar felt like it was like completely dead you know that kind of sound will mask all your mistakes and things run into each other and stuff and my guitar just felt really wooden and just like it wasn't really responsive it just seemed weird as it relates to sounding like <laughs> yeah. somebody else show you know the first thing you learn when you plug in anything like this that's got somebody's name on it is that the reason they sounded like they did was because of their hands not because of the instrument, the amp, the reverb, or any of that. You're saying my hands aren't as good as Jimi Hendrix. This isn't... I can't believe it, Rich. I thought you were my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. The sound yeah. comes from people's hands, not from a plug-in. I'm making a very specific distinction between instruments that you either touch or blow into, where your body is part of the vibration. Right. As apart from striking things like a piano or a drum or an organ or anything like that. I'm talking about where your body is actually participating in the vibration that takes place that causes the sound. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a guitarist's fingers, well, mine anyway, I don't know about anyone else, but mine mine wobble and make vibrato in the note. Yeah, well, that's true, but perhaps not quite in the same way as uh, our dear Jimmy, but uh, close enough. Well, I tell you what... So I now you're Niles. at it. <laughs> I play Niles' guitar at sound checks all the time, and I guarantee you I don't sound anything like him. And I know what the chords are he's playing, and I play the same chords at the same places. But it just it can't sound like him. Our hands are totally different, even on the same guitar. And I've played guitars by some of the most name-droppy people you can imagine, and I don't sound like them either. Even on their instruments through their rigs. Yeah. Exactly. Never mind through a Jimi Hendrix plug-in. That said, Niall is an enormous fan of Jimi Hendrix and his work, and I almost guarantee you we will own this plug-in. 
last week, uh, Peter Gabriel launched a, a kind of new DRM kind of... Uh, well, he's, he's launched a new mu- music service, which is supposed to kind of... I guess it's kind of riding the wave of everybody sort of saying, hey, we don't want, you know, we don't want to have DRM, we don't want to have to pay for stuff, you know. So what he's proposed is a new system, called, a new service called, uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it's WE7. So whether that's WE7 or WEZ or, I'm not quite sure, but it's WE7. And uh, it's quite an interesting model. What they've got, they've got this technology called... Uh, what, Mediagraph, do you tell me Mediagraph thing, yeah. So when you when you download one of these free tracks, um, it sticks an ad on it, basically, and you get to hear the ad a few times, and then after four weeks, you can choose not to have the ad anymore and keep the track. And the whole idea is being that you know it, this allows people to to share files, to download stuff for nothing, and but they they get they can tag advertising on it. Um, it just seems like an incongruous kind of set of parameters for somebody like peter gabriel to, to to be plugging advertising i don't know what anybody else thinks about it do you think it's doomed or do you think it might might actually present another another way forward music and advertising should be made illegal you think so <laughs> when we're talking about the hendrix thing i mean christ i mean we had hendrix advertising audi cars in the u.s we had bob dylan advertising victoria's secret do we want any more i don't I'm well now you can't watch series television without hearing classic who songs yeah, yeah but I mean, to be fair, I mean, also, if if you'd created that music and you were uh, an artist who perhaps needed um, need to make some money, that is where you make the big bucks. Oh, cha-ching! Said Moby. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but Nick, does it does a band like does a band like Led Zeppelin or the Who need the cash? I, I mean, they're still played on classic, you know, classic rock formatted radio in the U.S. ad nauseum all day, all night, every single day, three hundred sixty-five days a year. I, have to imagine that on their royalty in my opinion and i i mean obviously i'm not the one receiving the checks but it it sort of demeans what they attempted to do 20 30 years ago oh i don't know 30, 30 years well ago. do you, do they have to kind of stick by that you know for the rest of their lives just because it was i i, I think i think i know what you mean dave i mean it's classic stuff that you know you kind of feel it cheapens your memory of it perhaps you know when you hear it in those situations but i mean perhaps for new bands you know, it's it's kind of a major major coup to get a Coke ad or a, a Vodafone ad or a whatever. You know, I mean, those things kind of help pay the bills. What I want to know about this WE7 or WE7 or whatever it is called system is um, how, how do they stop it from being shared? Because if I go and download this and I watch the advert four times and then the advert disappears, can I then give it to everybody that I know? Um and then they don't have to watch the advert. That's one question. But the other question I want to ask is, if I've stolen loads of music and put it on my phone, not on my phone, I wouldn't put it on my phone, in my iPod, uh, is there any way that um, anybody can look at the music in my iPod and say, you know, where did you get that from? Did you download it or whatever? And I, I might just be able to turn around and say, well, I got it from Wii 7 and now the... Um, the advertising thing's gone off the front of it, and I could just say that I got all the music in my iPod from Wii 7, couldn't I? Well, you could, but I think there's only part... It's not everybody's participating. It's kind of new... They're, they're trying to sell it as sort of new bands, people who perhaps don't have publishing, don't have uh, other kind of deals, although they're obviously working on getting major catalogues on there. Um, but enabling... And, and also, the, I guess the artist will get a percentage of, of the ad revenue, which is a good kind of democratic thing. But Dave, you were just about to say... Well, does the artist, what my point is, does the artist have a choice as to who is advertised, who their music is used to advertise? Mm. 
It's mm. a bit of a can of worms, isn't it, really? I have to say. Well, there's certainly a lot of questions. I think what's curious with this is the idea is that they give the track away for free, effectively, as long as you're willing to accept the advertising that's glued to the front of it, right? I mean, that's the, that's the issue. I wonder what would happen if they offered it in that format and then in a pay-for format without the advertising to see which one people would go for. Yeah, I guess. I mean, but didn't we see something similar to this? What was that company? Was it Spiral Frog or Spiral something? Mm, or other? I, thought, I thought that had gone down now. Yeah, I, I mean, isn't, it's a similar model, as far as I can tell. There was a story in the paper this week about a, um, a track that had been played on Radio 1 and a couple of commercial stations, which was in fact an advert for a form of hair gel. And they managed to slip this track onto a playlist at Radio 1 and onto independent stations before anyone realised it was basically just an advert. <laughs> and this, this story was running the paper yesterday. And Radio 1 have had to say, well, obviously, because it's solely an advert, we're not allowed to play it. Play, it got played on major dance wow. tr- tr- shows. And that's, that's, the, that's why it's always a bit of an awkward sort of bedfellow, isn't it? Music and advertising, you know, because people just go to the other extreme where an advert becomes a track, and that's that. I think the point the, 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 mm-hmm. the many, that we're all making is that it's fine if you have the choice, right? If you choose to associate your music with a product, that's up to you. And if you're happy with that, then that's fine. The question arises of whether or not you have the choice and I think that's something that most people would be unhappy with not being asked I mean that's the issue isn't it well, if every bit of music was sold it's, or given sounded, away in this way then you wouldn't have the option would you no it sounded like from the article that uh, that it was actually they, they were going to profile people who joined this service and then target the advertising and, I, and this is part of the technology I believe it's probably some kind of grafting algorithm and then it chooses an advert relative, relative or, or aimed at the person to the person that signed up for the service. So if you're interested in football, you're going to get an advert for, you know, football gear. And if you're interested in sports cars, you're going to get an advert for the new Audi or something like that. That that that's what I gleaned from the article. So I don't know how much input the band actually gets in the advert. It must be some kind of disclaimer that you have to sign when you when you publish your music through this site saying that uh that's a kind of weird thing, though, because they'll be linking like certain genres of music to various advertising demographics, and then, you know, you'll be lumped, if you start playing punk, you might be lumped along with people that like, say, I don't know, tweeny bars or something, or, or whatever. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I wonder how they do the profile from song titles, so if you download a whole load of stuff by, I don't know, say, oh, Britney Spears, then uh, what what profile would you, what, what sort of ads would you get? You know, would you get ads for kind of... Valium, wouldn't you? Valium, Barbie, Barbie dolls... <laughs> Uh, you know, <laughs> Alco Pops. I don't know, it's kind of... Maybe you have to... I have ten. <laughs> Parenting guides. Hair yeah. removal cream. Wigs, yeah. Nail bar. <laughs> <laughs> Being the guy in the office who's, who's desi- whose job it is to design the algorithms that matches song titles and artists to ad types. Now, you could have a real fun there, couldn't you? I could do that job, actually. <laughs> well, I think so. Maybe what I'll do is uh, this week I'll, I'll register for it and see kind of what it entails and just have a bit more information on that. Because, you know, I, I've got a lot of respect for Peter Gabriel and the way that he's he's kind of pioneered a lot of things in music, um, m- most notably, you know, how the artist interacts with the record label, effectively. I mean, he set his own up, but, I mean, he was one of the first guys to only to lease his multi-tracks. So he paid for all the recordings of the albums. And then he'd he'd rent it effectively to the major label, who would then use it and promote it for X number of years, you know, with X number of rights. And then after a while, it just goes back to him, and it's his catalogue, you know. So mm. he kind of was pretty. He's he's done a lot of kind of innovation, innovative stuff with it in, from the business side of music. So I'd I'd give him give him a chance, and maybe we find out a little bit more about it. 
Just because it's him, I'll give him a chance. Mm. Okay. It, it does smack rather of, um, you know, lots and lots of money on PR, aiming for an IPO and uh, run off into the sunset with the cash. But I would hope that Peter Gabriel would be a little more sort of morally bound than that. <laughs> does anyone look at these iTunes, the, the suggested um, tracks that they throw up? I was a bit upset because they put Lindisfarne in mine. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of anything that I've bought that would uh, lead them to believe that I might want to buy a Lindisfarne track. I've yeah. switched my mini store off because apparently if you run the mini store, they track all your movements. and I, Well, obviously, so they can throw <laughs> up the suggestions, but I didn't like the idea of that. It's like when you get cold calls, isn't it, from, cards, from companies that have bought a database off somebody else like your credit card company, and you get targeted advertising, uh, um, you know, cold calls at you, and you just think, why on earth are you ringing me up? And, you know, that's kind of understandable. Spending patterns is one thing, but when it's kind of down to your own personal taste and they're sort of starting to dissect and kind of categorize you based on your sort of creative and and you know your your private life preferences it that's when it starts to get really weird and intrusive i kind of find that a little strange mm, a bit disconcerting but that all that kind of algorithm stuff i mean that's i'd like to know a bit more about this because presumably do you, do you think there's kind of a set of algorithms that are industry standard or does everybody just design their own based on kind of whatever they feel whatever criteria they feel like i would imagine that they just take copy off the pages of items that you've ordered and they find pertinent meta tags, and then they target you in that in that regard. And that's why occasionally um, you'll get some odd item <clears throat> offered you that has nothing, uh, that's not related in any way to an item that you've ever bought. Are there any restrictions on that? I don't know. Legal restrictions on data? They must hold that data. I mean, you know, I mean, every time you go to the supermarket, like you say, they know what you bought, right? Yeah, there's a woman here in the United States that's written a book on the subject because she she was interested in in what was happening with these supermarket loyalty cards and she said that her research yielded some interesting uh, results that uh, supermarket loyalty card databases were holding people's purchases back as far as 1998-1999 so you have a, a record if, if something's bought on a credit card of, of exactly what was you know or with a loyalty card of exactly what was purchased at the at the grocery store, and she said that there has been legislation that's been attempted attempted here in the United States to make this this type of thing available to uh, you know, all manner of folks. And she was suggesting that somewhere in the future, it could, uh, you know, possibly if it was correlated with a medical database, it could affect somebody's insurance rates. You know, medical well, insurance that's the rates thing that's and things kind of like scary, that. I think that, that's a little yeah. far-fetched. From what you read in the business pages, like this form of direct marketing based on profiling and all that kind of stuff is a massive growth industry, right? I think it's killing high street market uh, diversity. So if you have a, a, a slightly diverse interest or something, like buying anything to do with that interest becomes more and more difficult. And, and it's killing off the little guy. It's killing off the little hardware store or the little specialist sure. who specializes in something. Moving forward, you know, artists... It's incumbent on the artist to create a culture around themselves. And in order to, to it's, it's much easier to do that today than it was previously because we have access to the Internet and we can reach out to people on the globe. But I think that it's no longer going to be you know, a feasible model to create just good music and get it out there unless you have a gigantic marketing machine behind you. You're going to have to create something more tangible for people and maybe get them involved in, in your process. Or, yeah. You know, release a lot of unfinished tracks, let your fan base remix them, get them really, you know, really in interacting with you web 2.0 style. Otherwise, 
I think the little guy is not going to be able to compete with the marketing mm. machine, and the web is is no different than than the analog world in that regard. Yeah. What what Mark's saying correlates with that that drift towards fewer and fewer albums selling more and more units. So you have a very small number of global albums, and um, everything else doesn't do as much in the way of units. Well, I suppose I mean in a in a crowded market, it's just back down to brand, you know, and brand is brand is king. Right. Well, it's a rather depressing way to uh, to end things, but I think I'm going to um, wrap things up now. And I've spent a lot of time on the Peter Gabriel thing, and quite rightly too. Um, I just think that uh, you know we'll we'll have to watch this um, because obviously he's seen as a good man with sort of capital letters. Yet you know, essentially, the service that he's offering is also seen as the root of all evil. It's an interesting. Um, kind of marriage of um, points of view and philosophies that we'll have to keep an eye on. Sonic State. So thank you every mo- everyone for joining us. Thank you to Richard Hilton from Connecticut. Thanks for having me, Nick. And great pleasure to be with you guys. No problem. Uh, and PJ Tracy from Minneapolis. Thank you. Thanks so much, Nick. It's always fun. And uh, John Musgrave from... Oh, were well, you in London? Sunny London? I'm in London, yeah. Is it sunny or rainy? Uh, a bit of both. It's Just kind of grim. overcast. Well, yeah. thank you for joining us, John. Cheers, everyone. Have a good week. And Dave Spears from GeForce Software. Thank you very much. And, of course, Mark Tinley and Furby Friend. Thank you very much for joining us, too. Thank you very much. I'm going to attempt to put the, per- the Furby to sleep as well. Let's see if I can... Night, night. Oh. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> uh. Is that it snoring? Yeah. Sonic State Sonic Talk is a member of the Home Recording Network. You can find more podcasts and broadcasts on similar subjects to do with music and recording at homerecordingnetwork.com. Sonic State.com.